Joseph D'Angelo spent the better part of the 70s as a police officer tasked with protecting communities mostly in the Sacramento area of California. At the same time, he was terrorizing those same neighborhoods, potentially first as a serial burglar who he was charged with stopping, then as the East Area rapist who assaulted and killed so many in the same area he grew up in. And in the end, we knew him by one name, the Golden State Killer. When he killed for the last time in 1986, police still didn't know who they were chasing, but they had crime scenes stretching across the state of California, all connected by the chilling ways they played out. D'Angelo was arrested in 2018, and we now have a full picture of all the disturbing details of his crimes. By the time I reveal number one, you will understand how demented and cold the Golden State Killer actually was. Hey, all you weirdos. Welcome to Crime Countdown, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Ash. And I'm Elena. Every week, we'll highlight 10 fascinating stories of history's most engaging and unsettling crimes, all picked by the Parcast research gods. This episode, we're counting down the top 10 Golden State Killer disturbing details. This case, in my opinion, is one of the worst. Absolutely. Like, it may be the worst. Yep. Easily. Quite possibly could be the worst. The fact that this man is behind bars now really doesn't change the fact that his crimes traumatized not only the state of California, but like the entire nation. Mm -hmm. Trauma across the nation. I want to be clear that this episode is going to be very heavy. It will be tough for us to even talk about, and it's going to be tough to hear no matter what. But it's a story that really needs to be told because, you know, it affected so many lives and it still affects so many lives today. There are definitely quite a few trigger warnings we both want to give before moving ahead with the episode. The episode will have mentions of sexual assault, rape, violence towards children, and overall very disturbing details of a madman. If this episode is not the one for you, no hard feelings at all and we'll catch you next Monday. But... The silver lining here is that he is no longer the Golden State Killer. He is now just an old man who will live out the remaining years of his life behind bars where he belongs. Mm -hmm. Justice has finally been served. Thankfully, there's that. And, you know, some of these victims who survived never have to worry about getting another phone call, never have to worry about watching their back every corner they take. It's exactly where he belongs. 100%. And Elena has five disturbing details of Joseph D'Angelo's crimes, and so do I. But neither of us knows what's on the other one's list. Let's start the countdown. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. 10. 
I'll start us off with number 10. When Joseph D'Angelo was fired for allegedly stealing a hammer and a can of dog repellent. D'Angelo was a police officer from 1973 to 1979 in various California communities. But his career in law enforcement came to an end when he allegedly stole a hammer and a can of dog repellent from a store in a suburb of Sacramento. As far as we know, these exact items don't seem directly linked to any of D'Angelo's crimes. But looking back, this incident was definitely a red flag. Also, what is dog repellent? I still don't know. I didn't even know that it existed. And neither did I. Like, I know you want to repel like mosquitoes. For sure. But even that doesn't work. But dog repellent? What is that? I don't know, man. What don't dogs like the smell of? (laughs) That's what I don't understand. I know, because they literally rub themselves in like nasty things in in the yard. I don't understand. I don't know. Apparently Joseph did. Many of D'Angelo's crimes occurred while he was a police officer, which is so chilling. One of the scariest parts. It's believed that in 1973 1974, when he started as a police officer in Exeter, California, he was on the task force charged with finding a serial burglar and killer in the area. So basically chasing himself. That's like a movie. It really is. And you would think like too much. Yeah, that wouldn't happen. No, it did. But he very much terrorized the communities he was sworn to protect with break-ins, sexual assaults, and murders. In 1979, while the communities had been hunting for this predator who was making so many neighborhoods feel unsafe, Officer D'Angelo gets caught shoplifting. Two hardware store clerks caught him with a hammer and a can of dog repellent in his bag. D'Angelo did enter his victim's homes by jimmying open a window or a door and sometimes having to remove screens. Maybe enter the hammer? Maybe. And he was known to kill some of his victim's dogs. Jerk, jerk, jerk. Hate him. I hate this guy so much. Some believe that the dog repellent could explain the gross, strange odor that victims noticed coming off their attacker. Oh, yeah. And shoplifting them wouldn't leave a paper trail or like any kind of receipts. And since he's a cop, he would know that. Exactly. Auburn's police chief, Nick Willick, fired D'Angelo immediately after the shoplifting incident. I understand that like hindsight is 2020 and like, you know, police can't look into everything. But when you look at these two items that he stole and you pair that with the fact that there's like a burglar and a killer in the area, you don't find that strange. Yeah, that's the thing that bothers me is like shoplifting a hammer. I'd be like, what are you doing with that hammer? Right. Like, why did you not just why purchase just this hammer? Why did you buy that hammer, Officer D'Angelo? Like, what? What? And then pair that with dog, dog repellent? What are you using these items for? And if he was, you know, up enough on police stuff as a police officer to know that he should steal these things to not leave a paper trail, mm-hmm. why didn't any of the other cops say, hey, are you stealing those things to not leave a paper trail? To me, it seems a little obvious, but... No one else thought that on the force? Again, I don't know. 2020 hindsight, yeah, all of the above. But here's another terrifying detail. Right after D'Angelo was fired, he admitted to going to the police chief's home with a gun. The chief's four-year-old daughter saw him looking through the window. A four-year-old. A baby. The chief didn't press charges because he thought it was all done to fake stress to boost D'Angelo's fight for disability pay. Okay. But it's like, why would that signify stress? To me, that just signifies we have a prowler on the loose. Press charges against somebody who looks in your window with a gun. Do it. Yeah. Press charges. Please do so. Please do that. 
But just like that, there were less attacks in the Auburn and Sacramento areas. Strange. But according to the LA Times, 420 miles south, it became a different story. D'Angelo had moved to Southern California, where his attacks continued. At number nine is, when D'Angelo was caught, he was living in the Sacramento suburb where he committed most of his crimes. Joseph D'Angelo was arrested in April 2018, living in Citrus Heights, just outside of Sacramento. It's the same area that decades earlier he terrorized as the East Area Rapist. This is more than disturbing. It's almost sadistic and a taunt to family and friends of his victims who still lived in that neighborhood. D'Angelo grew up near Citrus Heights. He went to school in nearby Rancho Cordova and in Folsom, California. It's not unlikely that people move back to their hometowns, but most people hadn't raped, assaulted, and murdered their neighbors while serving as a local police officer. You don't say. One might say that that's rare. D'Angelo did move away for a while to the town of Exeter, over 200 miles away from Citrus Heights, from 1973 to 1976. That's where he started his law enforcement career and began his attacks. That sentence alone, he started his law enforcement career and and his attacks. attacks. So terrifying. I hate it. Again, another twisted fact. He was charged with finding the suspect who was responsible for about 100 break-ins, plus assaults and murder. It was probably him. I'm willing to say it was definitely him. I'm going to go out on a tree limb right now and say it is definitely him. He then moved back to Auburn, California, right near Citrus Heights, and was an officer there from 1976 to 1979 until he was fired. Fired. This is when his attacks amplified. Because I'm sure he was pissed. He was mad, more time on his hands. Oh yeah, and he probably wants to get back at the police force. Of course. Now, during his spree as the East Area Rapist between 1976 and 1979, he targeted middle-class neighborhoods like Carmichael, Citrus Heights, and Rancho Cordova at night. And then he decided to buy property in those neighborhoods. Insane. It blows your mind. From CBS Local, public files show, quote, he bought the Citrus Heights home with a VA loan for $77,000 in 1980. It's also reported that he killed in the Southern California area until 1986, meaning he bought the house and was still murdering people throughout the state. It's just so bonkers to even wrap your head around. It gets worse. And in that same time frame, he began a family, he got married, and he had three daughters. That sends me every time I hear every that. Time. And I think every time I hear that, I like must have like forgot that it happened yes. because it's so jarring every single I time. I feel like yeah, I feel like my brain just blocks it out. Because my brain can't think of this man as a father and a husband. No, I can't even think about him as someone with a circulatory system. No, I, don't I can't even, believe that I share that with him. Like well, you don't even really think of him as like a man. Like no. he's a monster. An actual demon. Now, after his arrest, his Citrus Heights home sold in 2019 for $320,000. According to local NBC, quote, real estate experts said it is likely the buyers were informed of who had lived there, which like I would hope so. Yeah, you should definitely so. know about that. You should know way before. Now, what's crazy to me 
is just imagine the people who live in that town right now. No. And existed with him, saw him at the store, saw him walking down the street. Saw him like riding his motorcycle or mowing his lawn. Just living next door to you like it's no big deal. Like he's not the Golden State Killer and like this wasn't his actual hunting ground. That is so scary. And then imagine like the second hand just like I don't even know what you would feel like, oh my God, like that could have been me. Yeah. And then also the victims, families and the survivors knowing that he was just living in that same neighborhood the entire time under everyone's nose. You could have passed him in traffic how many times a day? A million times. Eight. Number eight on our countdown of Golden State Killer disturbing details is the homework evidence and the fantasy map. On December 9th, 1978, following another D'Angelo attack, police were searching the area of Danville when they found three pieces of notebook paper. One piece was a school essay, another a handwritten rant against a teacher, and the third was a weird map that didn't match any known neighborhood. The question was, and may still be, Were these linked to Joseph D'Angelo in some way, or are they a red herring? Danville, California is an hour southeast of Sacramento. That December of 78, D'Angelo attacked a woman and police brought in bloodhounds to track him. The dogs followed his scent and the trail led from the victim's home to some paved over railroad tracks. There, investigators found those three pages of torn out notebook paper. One page contained what appeared to be a homework assignment, an essay on Civil War Commander General Custer. The second page was a ranting handwritten letter that started with the words, mad is the word. It then went on to describe a long-standing grudge against a sixth grade teacher. The writer claimed to hate that teacher more than anybody else. This teacher had apparently made this person write sentences over and over as a disciplinary measure. The third piece of paper was a hand-drawn map that investigators could not find an area in real life that matched it, hence the fantasy map nickname. But then the creep factor goes higher. On the back of this map was a list of girls' names. A list of names. No, and it sounds like this could be somebody who is an adult now and left those pages, like that big long rant against the sixth grade teacher with the assignment from that teacher. Right, like maybe held on to it. Which is stupid. <laughs> yeah, like, but let it go. I could see him doing that. Do you know how many times I was punished and like that was my punishment? Like yeah. had to write sentences over and over? And actually it was my sixth grade teacher. Was it? Yeah. Something about sixth grade, man. Mrs. Tara, but she was a great teacher. Anyways, it also seemed to have the name Snelling on it, which was the last name of one of D'Angelo's yeah, victims. I was just about to say that. Claude Snelling. Snelling was killed as he tried to stop D'Angelo from kidnapping his daughter in 1975. And the word punishment was written across the back of the map with a backwards P. Hmm. It's not clear if these papers belong to D'Angelo. Did he write them? Did he steal them? Or were they connected to him at all? This is prime theorizing, which happens around the homework and the fantasy map on Reddit a lot. At number seven this week is the fact that Joseph D'Angelo reappeared after a five-year break to claim one last victim in 1986. It seemed like the world was rid of the Golden State Killer, despite him not being caught. 
After murdering three people in 1981, he seemingly disappeared. But of course, just in time for California residents to feel somewhat at peace again, five years later, in 1986, he claimed one final victim. In May 1986, the Golden State Killer murdered 18-year-old Janelle Cruz. Janelle would be his last and also his youngest murder victim. Janelle's family had gone on vacation, but she stayed behind because she had a job at a local pizza place in Irvine, California, which is near Los Angeles. I guarantee you he knew that her family was going on vacation. Oh yeah, because we're going to talk about it more, but he definitely stalked all of his victims to the point... I, you can't even describe how invasive he was with his stalking. And there is not a doubt in my mind that he watched this house. He watched what happened. He knew they were going on vacation. He knew she had a job. Mm -hmm. He knew where she had a job. He may have even heard the conversation mm -hmm. of, oh, well, I have to stay home because I got like a shift this weekend. Yeah, he knew the routines. He so did. He definitely knew this family was gone and he knew she was vulnerable. Mm -hmm. The Washington Post reported one investigator saying, quote, we know he's a peeper. We know he's a prowler and he likes to watch people. So we know he probably was watching her with her friend, and then he was able to watch the male friend leave, so he knew that she was alone. That night in May, around 10.45 p.m., Janelle and her male friend heard a strange noise. They checked it out, found nothing, and her friend headed home for the night. Around 5 p.m. the next day, a real estate agent showing Janelle's home found her body. She had been raped and bludgeoned to death in her bed. Police found Janelle's blood in several places around the house, which matches his M.O. for moving his victims around their homes during his attacks. Oh, that just... It scares the crap out of just, me. In 2001, DNA analysis connected Janelle's murder to the other Golden State Killer crimes. After that night in May 1986, D'Angelo allegedly stopped committing murders. Keep in mind the disgust factor that he had daughters of his own at the time he killed Janelle Cruz. That is the thing. I think that's why my brain, every time I hear that, like, oh yeah, he had three yeah. daughters, is like, what? Because you're, who, what, what? How can you not put yourself in the same position? Like, how can you not have the kind of empathy in your brain to do you that? You are not a father or a parent or a guardian or someone who loves a child. If you can look at another child and, and hurt, hurt that child and not put your own kid in their in place. That position. Right. Like, no matter what, when I read terrible cases about kids, I immediately think of my kids. That's why and me it destroys me. Don't do children cases. Yes. Yeah, because I can't do it. I can't separate it. No. The fact that this guy can, to this extent, he's a demon, a literal monster. Six. Also on our list at number six is, the Golden State Killer would sometimes take breaks during the attacks to eat his victim's food. Oh, God. LA Magazine said it right when they called D'Angelo, quote, brazen. When he entered a home to attack his victims, he was rarely in a hurry. Witnesses reported he once took a break to cry and on a number of occasions was known to stop assaulting his victim, then eat their food before returning to attack them some more. That one detail that he would like stop, eat some food out of their house and then continue. That is like already what he's doing is so invasive. And then to have somebody walk away from one of the worst things they could possibly do to you and just sit down and eat your food calmly. And then you're sitting there wondering, is what he coming next? back? Is he leaving after this? I can't imagine that weight must feel like 
eons. Oh, absolutely. I've always said it. If someone breaks into your house in the middle of the night, lock a door and call the police. Like, don't confront people in the middle of the night. The people who enter your home in the middle of the night are on another level of scary. Another level. if they can come into somebody's house in the middle of the night without having any idea of what's in there or not caring. Because that's the thing. They don't care if they're they're able to do that. They're beyond. And if somebody can do that and then sit down calmly and eat your food and not be in a hurry, not be worried at all about getting caught. Right. That would be beyond. And then at that point, it's like they have all of the control and you must feel that in the room. Yeah, just helpless. The definitive book on this case is written by the late Michelle McNamara titled I'll Be Gone in the Dark, One Woman's Obsessive Search for the Golden State Killer. That is an amazing book. Incredible. you, read that book. Michelle is amazing. Absolutely. Her researcher on that book is a big believer in the psychological torment D'Angelo loved to use on his victims. That included staying in their house too long, going through their belongings, and taking breaks between relentless attacks to eat their food. His attacks reportedly lasted hours. He even sometimes moved his victims around the house like we mentioned before. Just knowing that somebody has invaded your space, all of your things, it's just like an extra layer of being attacked. This honestly, this kind of behavior on top of the already sadistic behavior that he was doing before this just solidifies what a demon he is. I keep saying it, but it's like... The layers and layers. He gets so much enjoyment out of prolonging this horrific, torturous experience for someone, not in his home or not in a neutral area, in their own safe space. Right. He prolongs this torturous experience. That is another level. And even when he would like move people around, you then know that he knows the layout of your home. Exactly. So then you're thinking, how long has this man been watching me? Mm -hmm. Just the layers and layers of psychological torture. Yeah, watching him know where to go in your house must be like, wait, 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 what? can't, I literally can't imagine. I'll Be Gone in the Dark mentions times D'Angelo took a break from a brutal assault to eat crackers and another where he ate a cantaloupe and crackers before leaving. It's reported he calmly spent other times in between continued assaults to drink a beer and to eat some pie. I wanted so badly for one of those times for him to get like a massive case of food poisoning from like some food that's been in the refrigerator. Maybe he did. I hope so. Knowing that would be like at least something. Something. On December 30th, 1979, Dr. Robert Offerman and his girlfriend, Deborah Alexandria Manning, had been murdered by the Golden State Killer. And detectives found the remnants of leftover holiday turkey on the back patio. Yeah, you're gross, dude. You're so gross. You're eating the meal that these two two people prepared like with their family and ate Mm -hmm. with their family and gave thanks with their family and you just took their lives and then took their holiday meal yeah this is such a nasty little onion that just keeps it is we'll never get to the deepest layer of nasty with him which honestly i don't even want to yeah we don't want to get there I know already. It's so heavy. This man just, I think you said in the beginning, I truly think he is the most evil. This case is the worst. Every time you think you get to the worst part, he does something else that you're like, you did what? It just keeps coming. When you look at him now and he's faking that 
crap about being like ill and you know ugh, like so frail and all that every like time I anybody's saw, I like, gonna give a crap exactly and i'm like just get out of here stop you're not frail and it's like you didn't feel bad for a single person clearly no. because he like went on and on and on to continue yeah. to harass these people and you think that because you have like a cane and a muffled voice that we're gonna feel bad for you no definitely not you're a horrible horrible individual no joseph we will not oh and especially not when we get through the rest of this which i'm a little scared for but here we are pirates for centuries the world has been fascinated by them in films like pirates of the caribbean they're portrayed as swaggering anti-heroes in books like treasure island they're fearsome villains but who were they really that's the question that real pirates the new spotify original from podcast answers the whole thing about a pirate ship is that they were heavily manned but you could have a hundred pirates on board so these are floating violence factories at the same time pirates were really fascinating characters in a way if you were born poor you stayed poor pirates on the other hand they were able to transcend that social boundary they didn't see themselves just as thieves and brigands, they saw themselves as social revolutionaries. Set sail under the black flag alongside notorious outdoors like Blackbeard, Charles Vane, and Bonnie and Mary Reed. Join us for episodes airing weekly starting November 15th. Follow and listen to Real Pirates for free on Spotify. Five. All right, let's jump back in with number five on our countdown of Golden State Killer disturbing details. Starting off the second half of our list, the fact that Joseph D'Angelo would call his victims both before and after his attacks to taunt and terrorize them. You could probably categorize this chilling move into that psychological torture column we talked about in number six with him eating their food. He never wanted his victims to feel at ease or forget that he was still out there. And that is an extreme level of disturbing. Part of his pre-attack ritual would be calling victims and threatening them. Then afterwards, sometimes years later, calling them again to continue this torment. The fact that some of the times were years later, like I've seen people be like, I finally was getting to Mm -hmm. a point where I was like doing better and he called. Yeah, disrupted it again. How do you go through that? And how do you do that to someone? Yeah, it's... So what you can hear someone saying on a phone call recording from the late 70s that the FBI released is going to kill you, going to kill you, going to kill you. Oh, I hate it so much. And it's in a whispered like, (laughs) it almost sounds like a little child like sing songy way about it. Mm -hmm. They believe it's the Golden State Killer on those tapes. It's mixed with a lot of just heavy breathing which several victims experienced. We covered this case on Morbid and I listened to a ton of like, you know, interviews about this and I listened to that recording. It is, chilling isn't the word. I don't even think there's a word for it because that's how terrifying it is. And it's this like breathing, like somebody like sing-songy saying, I'm going to kill you. And then knowing what he did, like that this wasn't an empty threat. And then pair that with like, okay, so you get that phone call and you're so terrified. And then somebody breaks into your house and you're like, you connect to those two events. Again, another level of psychological Mm -hmm. torture. It really is. It's 
So survivors of the Golden State Killer have also reported hang-ups in the days leading up to the attacks. Mm -hmm. Others have talked about getting strange calls after the attacks on them or their loved ones. And that's even scarier because, like, he would go and figure out who was your family members, what their names were, where they were. And you already took their family member away from them, and now you're calling them to terrorize yeah, to them even more. Them. In All Be Gone in the Dark, author Michelle McNamara wrote about a 2001 call. The victim says the male caller said, remember when we played? Oh, God. The LA Times also reported that D'Angelo would call and say things like, remember me, to victims. Jane Carson Sandler, who was raped by the Golden State Killer in 1976, said she received a call, quote, so I knew he was still out there and I knew that he could come back. And that really is the thing. He was letting them know I might come at any time. Live in fear. Like, good night, because every single night I could come and my brain won't even let me, like, even go there. No, because with what this man did to people, I'm sure they fully expected him to come oh, back that very night. Absolutely. And it wasn't just calls to victims themselves. Like we said, D'Angelo would call the families of those he had killed for decades after their murders. I feel like the people who either survived his attacks or the family of the people who survived the attacks should get to call him in prison every day mm -hmm. and say their names or torment like him. torment him yeah. just like he did to them. I would support that. Let's go. Four. Landing at number four this week is the horrible truth that young children were in the homes during many of the Golden State Killer attacks. Some of D'Angelo's victims were very young themselves. Janelle Cruz, who we talked about and is considered his last murder victim, was just 18. But sadly, there were even much younger kids involved. Some were witnesses to his crimes, and most often, they were used in his threats against the victims. My least, least favorite thing to talk about. Yeah, this one is definitely going to be hard. In September of 1975, D'Angelo shot and killed Claude Snelling when Snelling stopped D'Angelo from kidnapping his 16-year-old daughter, Elizabeth. This was early on when he was a police officer in Exeter, California. Claude Snelling is considered Golden State Killer's first murder victim, right in front of his child. Ugh. Who he was protecting. Right. We mentioned Jane Carson Sandler in number five, who said she received phone calls from the Golden State Killer in the years after he attacked her. D'Angelo broke into Jane's home in October of 1976, but she wasn't home alone. Jane's three-year-old son was there when D'Angelo tied both he and his mother up, blindfolded, and gagged them. And he knew how young this child a was. A three-year-old. A three-year-old. That's a baby. Three-year-olds are like the smushiest. Just the cutest, smushiest things. And you're I, traumatizing ugh. somebody that early in their life. Like, they're going to spend the rest yeah, of their life with that memory. With that. Whether or not they actually remember it, their body will. Oh, God. It's just, ugh. During D'Angelo's trial, Jane delivered her victim impact statement directly to him in a Sacramento courtroom. Yeah, she did. Reminding him how he threatened to kill both her and her young son. She said, quote, My attention was not on the rape, but fully on where did you put my son when you removed him from the bed? Where did you put him and what were you going to do with him? 
I swear my insides just like turn to dust. I have full blown goosebumps because that right would now. literally be the only thing I would I could ever think about. Oh yeah, that's a what mom are you gonna do? right there. What, that's like a where's mom. my baby? Like where is I don't my baby? care what happens to yeah. me. Where's my child? And I'm sure she was in that. Like I don't even care. Like do whatever to me in that kind of torture is far worse than anything you could ever imagine. The ultimate, I would Not assume. Not knowing what's happening to your three-year-old baby and you can't protect him because no. some demon has come into your home and, like, I can't. It's unfathomable, it this really entire is. thing. This is the worst case by It far. is. It really is. Michelle McNamara wrote in I'll Be Gone in the Dark, quote, children didn't bother him. He never hurt them physically, but he would tie up the older ones and put them in another room. What kind of person is able to do this in front of and to children? And you're putting these children in another room where they're going to hear everything. And all they're going to be doing, and especially some of the older ones, they're going to remember this forever. Fully. fully. And they're going to remember the sounds they heard. They're going to remember the feelings they felt. They're going to be in pure terror, sitting there wondering what's happening to their parents and what's going to happen to them next. Right. Yeah, you never physically hurt one, honestly. Like, this is far worse. It is. In some ways. It's mental torture. They didn't know if you were going to come physically hurt them. They were sitting there worried the whole time. Wondering what was going to happen next. Like, everybody involved in these attacks. Often, D'Angelo got his victims to comply by threatening to kill their children if they didn't comply. In 1978, he told one victim he'd cut off her baby boy's ear if she didn't do what he said. I am so angry. Like, I'm so angry. What kind of brain even comes up with something like that? And one 17-year-old victim was babysitting in June of 1979 at the same time she was being attacked. She also said she received creepy phone calls leading up to that night, but at a different home than the one she was babysitting. So he knew your every move. Yeah. And... That just makes me feel like the fact that he did it while she was babysitting, he full-blown enjoyed when children were involved oh, because yeah. it just added a to level. his nastiness. Yeah, and it was a way for him to get even more power over his victims. Like it says right in here, he would use the kids. I'm going to kill your kid if you don't do everything I say. Right. And every single parent on earth is going to, yep, whatever you need to do. Of course, they're going to just be handed over to you. Absolutely. He used it as as a tactic. And it adds a level of fear, which we know he was getting off on the fear here. And the, you know, the unknown, the fear of the unknown, what's going to happen next? How is this going to end? He could feel it in the room. And he knew that adding on to this, that level of a love a parent has for a child and the love a child has for a parent. Because he apparently knows. And the fear of separating the two, he knew what that was going to do. Right. And again, he was a father. Oh, it just, I can't. I genuinely cannot. Three. Number three on our countdown of Golden State Killer disturbing details is the dishes trick. As the Golden State Killer became more brazen than ever, he didn't just break into homes where a woman was home alone. He broke into homes where they were there with their husbands or families. Sadly, we hear about so many women who were brutally attacked and killed. But what you may not hear a lot is about the men who were tortured, having to watch or listen to their wives go through it. And D'Angelo had a trick to keep them quiet during it all. 
When D'Angelo became confident enough to attack couples, he developed a method where he'd first surprise them in their sleep, flashing his flashlight in their eyes to disorient them oh, immediately. That alone. Yeah. By the time anyone knew what was happening, D'Angelo would have a gun pointed at them. He'd then tie up the man and stack dishes, like plates or cups, on the man's back. One of the craziest would be the salt shaker on top of a metal pot lid. Victor Hayes experienced this in October 1977. The then 21-year-old was asleep in bed next to his 17-year-old girlfriend when he was woken up with the flashlight and gun pointed at him. D'Angelo put a salt shaker on top of a metal lid on his back and told him that if he heard them fall off, he'd, quote, blow his effing head off. This has been dubbed the dishes trick. First of all, who thinks of this? That is the thing. What is this man's brain? Because it makes me think like, so you were just sitting at home. Coming up with this. Being like, how can I do this? And how can I add as much terror and horror to this situation as humanly possible? No, I'm not just going to tie the man up, which would be horrific enough. I'm going to do this weird like trick. Right. That's like a game that I'm like, what do you jigsaw? Like, get out of here. No, exactly. And again, it's so personal. He's taking their dishes, going in their cabinets. Mm -hmm. I literally can't even form words to get through this one. And it's another thing of you're worried about your children when the children are there. You're worried, about, you're your worried about your spouse and these poor men, these poor men, because he's not only threatening them. He's saying, if I hear that move, I'm going to kill her. Right. The poor husbands or spouses or significant others are laying there. And you're probably weighing in your head because I immediately put myself in the position of like me and my husband, John. Mm -hmm. They're probably fully weighing in their head. Do I just throw these things off me and try to go attack him? Or is he just going to shoot her in the head if is I Is he do that? really going to do what he said like, he was going to do? Could I be responsible for her suffering more if I do this? But am I also going to lay here and have to listen to this and not be able to help? It's And not only that, impossible. if you can come to terms with the fact that you can't move, then you're sitting there like, I literally can't move a muscle mm -hmm. because what if I even accidentally clang this dish? Exactly. Just breathing. And then as the woman, you're like, I want my husband to protect me. But in this case, I don't because... Exactly. Well, and then you're because sitting there wondering... Him. You would probably have full confidence in your husband that he would. But then you're like, oh my God, please don't. Yeah, because I'm assuming we just heard it right there. He said, I'll blow your effing head off. He's probably threatening both of them. Exactly. So they both think if he moves that dish, the both other one's getting it. Exactly. Which would be my problem. It wouldn't be me. It would be like, I don't want him to get hurt. Exactly. And it's just playing off of like the purest of human emotions right. i feel like he just he really, understood that somehow but well, didn't have them not even understood them he just liked to play off of them mm -hmm. like he liked to warp them he yeah. would warp basic like deep human emotions like love for your spouse he recognized love for your them. child and he would play with them and it's so much grosser than anything i've ever heard now, this was all D'Angelo's way, obviously, of keeping tabs on the men, knowing they wouldn't be able to move while he did what he did to the women. Plus, it made him feel like a bigger man because he needed that. Oh, yeah. Forensic profile Leslie D'Ambrosia has said, quote, he wanted there to be two people there because that was his intent, to degrade and to emasculate. LA Times reported one male victim telling police, quote, he was just such a revolting sense of power, saying D'Angelo whispered, you don't like this, do you? Ugh. That's, 
I can't. I have. I can't. Yeah, we all know why he needed to feel that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the dishes trick was the thing about this case that always stood out to me. Me as well. And now I'm going to go to sleep tonight, maybe question mark, and think about that the entire time. Like when we were covering this on Morbid, I often will pull John into the room and be like, I got to tell you this. Yeah. It's just got to get out of my face. Drew doesn't let me. He's like, no, thank you. Usually John's like, oh, okay, okay. And then like halfway please through, stop. he's like, please stop. I need to sleep. And I remember telling him that and like halfway through it, he was like, you gotta stop. I can't hear about that. It's too much. Because he was like, I'm putting you in that experience of me. And he was like, and it's too much. And these poor people. It's unimaginable. You have no idea what that would feel like unless you've been through it. And my heart genuinely goes out to all of the people that experienced yeah. that. Yeah. It's insane. It's unthinkable. And it's not even number one. And we're not even done yet. Not even number one. My next one is rough, just so you know. We're down to the final two spots on our countdown of Golden State Killer disturbing details. At number two is the things he said and uttered during his attacks. We briefly mentioned earlier in the episode that one victim said she heard Joseph D'Angelo crying in her home after assaulting her. Another victim is mentioned in I'll Be Gone in the Dark, saying it wasn't so much crying as uncontrollable, hysterical laughter. Either way, it's unnerving. But when you put together the actual words he used during his attacks, they paint a picture of a frightening man. He'd threatened his victims, threatened their kids, and walked around the house almost giving himself pep talks. Can't hate him more. How could I pot? Like how every single second I'm hating him even more. It's worse and worse. Many victims reported D'Angelo making threats through his clenched teeth. LA Times reported him saying things like, make the bed twinge and I'll butcher you all to pieces. Ugh. 15-year-old Chris McFarlane was attacked and raped by D'Angelo in 1976. With a knife to her neck, the Golden State Killer told her, make a move and I'll kill you. And if you say anything or flinch, I'll push the knife all the way in and I will be gone in the dark of the night. And he also whispered to her, isn't this good? I hate that I even just had to say that. Nope. Uh. SF Gate wrote about one victim who D'Angelo attacked in 1979. She told police that D'Angelo walked around her house saying to himself, I'll kill him. I'll kill him. Like, what? That's like the jinx. It is. It absolutely is. An investigator described it like, quote, a guy pumping himself up for an athletic endeavor. Ew, 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 ew. Michelle McNamara's book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, says in its prologue that he once told a six-year-old who witnessed him attacking their parents, quote, I'm playing tricks with your mom and dad. Come watch me. I literally hate this so much. This is torture from the outside. I want to like Kool-Aid man myself through a wall right now. Good hearing that. That is... I need to heat myself out of a window. Beyond. Oh, and we're not done yet, but it's important to tell. Strangely, he was also caught saying the word mommy and also the name Bonnie, which before his ID was known, no one knew who Bonnie was. As it turned out, D'Angelo's ex-fiance was named Bonnie. Look at that. The actual Bonnie responded to her name being heard during attacks. She said after his sentencing, quote, 
Maybe I'm part of his cover. Maybe his family's part of his cover. We're all props in his big story where he's always been a criminal underneath. Poor, poor Bonnie. Bonnie. Yeah. <laughs> like, God, it's like Poor Bonnie and poor woman he was married to and yeah. poor daughters. Like, I just can't imagine, especially, especially as a woman, mm-hmm. knowing what he did to other women. Well, and as Bonnie... Knowing that he was saying your name. Like using you as a tactic. Doing these horrific, torturous things to other women. Like knowing that you were there somehow. Like Like, you have no part in it, but like knowing that your name was there and that they heard your name during those terrifying moments, that's a lot to do. No, it's just too much. Everything he does is too much. One. And that brings us to number one on our countdown of the top 10 Golden State Killer disturbing details, which is, chances were that if he was attacking you, he had already been in your house sometime before that, scouting and prepping for that assault. The chilling truth is, D'Angelo often cased his victims' houses, sometimes learning personal details about them and prepping their home for his break-in and attack. According to LA Magazine, he'd spend that initial visit learning the layout, studying family pictures, and memorizing names. And on many occasions, the victim and possibly their families were home at that time too. That is too much for my brain to handle. Yeah. And don't you just imagine him walking around your house? Yes. An empty house or when you're just in the kitchen, like just somewhere else and he's in there. Yeah. He prepared for these attacks. I'll Be Gone in the Dark really covers this preparation that Joseph D'Angelo took to get ready to attack someone. Michelle McNamara notes that he stalked entire neighborhoods. He often moved via drainage ditches to pick out which houses seemed like they'd be easiest to get into, get out of, and not get caught. We mentioned this before. This is where he studied his victims' homes to figure out the schedules of the families, so he knew how to time his attacks up. Change your routine. Change up your routine if you can. Once he got inside the houses during his pre-assault visits, as LA Magazine writes, D'Angelo, quote, disabled porch lights and unlocked windows. He emptied bullets from guns. He hid shoelaces or rope under cushions to use as ligatures. Can you imagine later on, like, sitting on your couch knowing, like, he put that under your couch or under your bed or under your pillow? Like, And you wonder if anybody was sitting there and, like, put their hand like down and like pulled something out and was like, what the heck is this? What is this about? Or like had kids and was like, did somebody just like shove that in a couch cushion? And then realizing that when he comes to attack you. And one theory mentioned by SF Gate is that this is when he'd find the phone number to the house to use for his taunting calls. That is just, yeah. And then you're sitting there wondering when he's coming back because if Mm -hmm. he's calling you and he was so brazen before and the police aren't figuring out who this man is, you must just wonder every single night, like how did these people ever go to sleep again? Exactly, it's beyond thought, it really is. The thing is too, He kind of trained himself to do this. In 1974, after he landed his first job as a police officer in Exeter, California, that's when he basically started to hone his break-in skills. 
which is really scary that it took him becoming a law enforcement officer to learn how to break the law. Because you picture him like going through all the training that it takes to become a police officer, knowing full well what he intends to do, what he's gonna use those skills for. There were reportedly 120 break-ins in the area. Allegedly, it was D'Angelo who would break in when no one was home and steal random items. It's like it was like a rehearsal for him. Oh, this was definitely him getting the skills, figuring out how to do it. What's the best way to get in? What's the best way to get out? How long do I need to be in here? What do I not need to do? What do I need to do? He's literally practicing. This was definitely practice. But as we know now, over the next year, his break-ins escalated. He now wanted people to be home and eventually turned violent. There were a lot of reports in the area of footprints in the dirt outside the windows. He started peeping through windows at night and watching people, which I can't. If you're peeping into windows, like that's the beginning of something really bad. Oh, always. of course. Always. There were a lot of sightings of a man in a ski mask looking through windows. In February 1976, a criminal psychiatrist told investigators, quote, the suspect may very well enjoy the high risk or danger of the whole matter and that he got a thrill from creeping around. LA Times reported that D'Angelo might very well suffer from paraphilia, meaning the danger of breaking into the homes and walking around gave him a sexual thrill. I think that's pretty safe to say. Also, let's not say he suffered from anything. He definitely didn't suffer. He then unfortunately acted on those sexual thrills and sadly turned to raping his victims. Also in 1976, that's when D'Angelo returned to the Sacramento area as a police officer in Auburn. Sadly, he was much more confident in his break-in abilities. According to Victor Hayes, who we talked about at number three and was attacked in 1977, he said D'Angelo made a threatening remark about Hayes' mother, Sharon, which he probably learned from his pre-attack scout. That is unreal. He talked about his mom. And then you would wonder, is this someone I know? Because of course, maybe you're not yet realizing that this person has been in your house before, especially in the panic of this whole entire thing. Of course. Obviously, again, can't imagine. But you're sitting there like, do I know this person? Because like, how do they know this about me? Right. Jane Carson Sandler is talked about in I'll Be Gone in the Dark. She says he believes D'Angelo was probably the same guy who broke into her house and stole some jewelry a couple weeks before she was attacked by him. Both times he broke in through her son's bedroom window, who we mentioned was three years old at the time. That's so scary. He broke into a three-year-old's little baby bedroom. Both times. Knowing full well what he was going to do. Jane said while D'Angelo assaulted her, he mentioned her husband as the captain because he was an Air Force captain. I literally hate him. I every time. Full-fledged hatred for this man. And probably one of the creepiest examples to end with, one of D'Angelo's victims, just 13 years old at the time, said her father took down her playhouse because, quote, that's where he was watching me, stalking me. Laying on top of the playhouse, he could see right into my bedroom window. Nope, 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 Stalking a child while laying on their playhouse outside. Like, what is beneath him? So you know what? Let's talk about how he got caught. Let's do it. He's behind bars. Thank God. We've heard so many disturbing ways that Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer, operated. Yes, we have. It's hard to believe, and it really is, that he got away with it for so long, but he did get caught. 
In 2018, using DNA evidence in a genealogy website, investigators finally tracked down D'Angelo and he was arrested. Reminder, ding, 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 one more time, living in the same Sacramento suburb where he caused so much pain and terror. Like retired, yeah. living there. Just living. He was in his 70s when they caught him. He pleaded guilty to 13 counts of first degree murder. Sadly, the statute of limitations ran out on his many, many earlier crimes. I wish there was some kind of loophole, yeah. especially with this case, to like get through Golden that. Golden State Killer, like come on. Like the statute of limitation should not exist. Not for that. For that. For sure. And in August 2020, victims and their families were able to deliver statements right to his face in court. Good. And let me tell you, it was very satisfying to see. Jane Carson Sandler told D'Angelo that she still gets anxiety because of his attack, but that, quote, my comfort at those times is remembering that you are finally going to prison and will remain there until you die. What a bad yes, bee. he will. And seriously, all of those victims who were able to stand there in front of him, first of all, I can't imagine like what that would have been like and how scary that must have been. The strength that took. How courageous. The strength that took. Seriously. Like, like that is. Otherworldly. On another level. So good for all of you. And I'm so glad that hopefully they can move forward because he is finally where he belongs and is going to stay there. And has belonged for so long. He's no longer out. And that is a great thing. And that we just know who he is. Right. Having that like nameless, faceless, just phantom kind of thing going. Yeah. Was not something that needed to be happening. We needed his ugly face and we needed his name. We did. Because then so many other people who were still scared of this happening mm -hmm. to them, they don't have to be scared. Exactly. I literally think that we should take the podcast research gods out to like a really nice dinner yeah, after this because they really went through it. They went through it. And they did the damn thing. I also think this entire thing could have just been number one. Yeah, like, this is like just all Every one. single entry could just be like number one. Number one is the scariest. They're things. all tied for the worst things ever. They certainly are. And nothing that I know was left off. I can't think of anything, but I'm also emotionally scarred at this point in time. Yeah. So, yeah. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another great episode. Remember to follow Crime Countdown on Spotify to get a brand new episode delivered every week. You can find all episodes of Crime Countdown and all other podcast shows for free on Spotify. And if you like this show, follow at Parcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Parcast Network on Twitter. And if you like us, which I hope you do, because we like you, you can listen to Morbid, our other podcast, anywhere you listen to podcasts, or you can find us on Instagram at Morbid Podcast or on Twitter at A Morbid Podcast. We hope you keep it weird until Monday and just like hug your loved ones. Yeah, just give everybody a hug. Feel safe. Crime Countdown is executive produced by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It was created by Max Cutler. Sound design by Kristen Acevedo, with associate sound design by Kevin McAlpine. Fact-checking by Cara Mackerlein. Research by Mickey Taylor. It's produced by John Cohen, Kristen Acevedo, and Jonathan Ratliff, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro. We're your hosts, Ash Kelly and Elena Urquhart. Pirates. 
For centuries, the world has been fascinated by them. Blackbeard, Charles Vane, and Bonnie. Who were they really? Real Pirates is a new Spotify original from Parcast. Join us starting November 15th as we bring the true story of pirates to life.